Hello there, John Cotterillo here, the life coach behind your listener. Welcome to my second video. Thank you very much to everybody who watched my first video and to anybody who subscribed and what your support means a lot to me and uh, I'm really looking forward to being able to interact with you all in discussing the topics that fascinate us. Today I'd like to discuss a topic that's a major barrier to our progression in the field of mental health and how we address the issues of mental illness. I'm not a mental health practitioner at all and that this video is not intended to be uh, authoritative advice in any sense of the term. If you have concerns regarding your mental health, as always, seek assistance from a licensed professional. But I'm hoping that today by initiating this discussion, I'm hoping to stimulate discussion amongst really everybody, not just mental health practitioners, not just consumers of mental health services, but anyone who, for whom this issue is important, I'd like to facilitate discussion and I would like to hear a range of different perspectives in response if you choose to share them. Uh, so, I very much, so I very much welcome that. But today I'd like to discuss one of the major barriers to advancing our understanding of mental illness and to treating it. And it's the issues of reification now, first, I'd like to define exactly what reification is because it's, and, and some of the uh, foundations of scientific study. To start at the very basics, whenever we study something scientifically, regardless of the, the issue, but particularly when we're discussing mental illness, we need to use frameworks and make certain assumptions. The reason we need to do this is because if we don't use a theory or a framework through which we see the world and make assumptions about how the world operates, then we actually can't study anything scientifically because there would be no, uh, there would be no guiding principle. Now, one of the fundamental, one of the fundamental principles of science is the assumption that there is regularity in nature. That is to say that when we are observing an event, each time it happens, it has common characteristics and it should have a common cause or a common set of substrata or underlying factors that influence it. To give you an idea of why this is important, imagine that I wanted to leave my house to go to the supermarket, as an example, and I had to drive and I had to, I had to drive there and, and the supermarket is approximately a 20 minute drive away. In order for me to actually take action on that goal, I have to make some assumptions. I have to assume that I am capable of driving a car. Now, obviously I'm a licensed driver, so this is not something that I have to assume, uh, hopefully. But I have to assume that after getting into the car, I can competently drive it in such a way that I can reach my destination without uh, without barriers caused by my own lack of competence. I have to assume that I, I have to assume that I know exactly how far away the supermarket is, that it will take me approximately 20 minutes to get there. I have to assume that I know where the supermarket is, otherwise I can never reach the destination because I won't have a guiding principle of how to get there. These seem like simple decisions to make and, and they're some of our most basic everyday tasks. But what we're actually doing when we undertake even the most basic everyday task is we're making assumptions. But in reality, there are no guarantees in life. So there's no guarantee that 
when I get into the car, I know exactly what's going to happen. There's no guarantee that somebody else won't cause an accident. There's no guarantee that it will take me exactly 20 minutes to reach the supermarket or that nothing will stand in the way of me doing it. But if I don't hold these basic ideas to be true, that I know where the supermarket is and then when I get in the car, I can drive there competently and I know exactly how long it will take or roughly how long it will take me. If I don't hold those to be true by assumption, then I would never achieve my most basic daily tasks. I would never bother going shopping. I would never bother doing anything because I wouldn't have anything to suggest that there would be no evidence that anything was possible. I wouldn't believe anything was possible. We have to make assumptions in life. When we're studying science, anything scientifically, we have to make similar assumptions because if we don't assume that events take place with some kind of regularity, with some kind of common uh, qualities and common cause, then we can't, we, we can't narrow down the range of possible observations that we're specifically expecting we would have to basically test each and every event that took place in the world in and of itself in incredible depth to the extent that we wouldn't be able to do anything because we would we would be so busy testing absolutely everything that we wouldn't have the time to actually focus on the events that were of interest to us. This is especially necessary when we're studying anything that's abstract, such as thoughts and feelings. Similarly, when somebody has a mental illness, we can't see the illness. Now, when we treat something that is abstract as something real or physical, in science we call it reification. Now, I'm going to use the term relatively liberally here. I'm taking some poetic license to also include the act of assuming that the way you think of something is the way that it exists in real life. When we study anything, we have to reify to some extent, especially when it comes to... When it comes to uh, psychological matters, we have to assume that what is happening in the mind is real and that it has common qualities because if we don't assume that then there's no way for us to study it. To give you an example, imagine that you were a therapist and numerous clients were uh, consulting with you and they all described a long list of symptoms. I feel sad, I feel hopeless. I don't want to face the wall, I don't want to get out of bed, I don't believe anyone cares about me and it's stopping me from living my daily life. But because you were treating each client as a new occurrence and each instance of them feeling these symptoms as new events, then you would have to study each client in depth in order to understand exactly what it was that was occurring. Imagine how long that would take you. But, seeing as the field of psychology has existed for some time, and numerous such people have presented to their therapist in the past with those same descriptions, and we've collected data about those people who have, who have uh, experienced those symptoms, and we have uh, drawn correlations, that is to say we have seen common factors between those people, we now have an identification of those groups of symptoms as depression. And when someone presents to their therapist now with those same symptoms, immediately it signals 
to the therapist that that client might have depression and they immediately know that they can narrow down their investigation to those particular uh, that particular possibility that the client might be depressed and they can use existing knowledge that's been collected over the years uh, to investigate what likely other symptoms the client might be experiencing what the likely long-term effects might be of that particular illness and importantly what treatments are likely to work because we collated so much data on depression and we now see that it occurs as a real illness with regularity we can consistently test treatments for it and so because we've tested treatments and found that there are certain treatments that work better than others we immediately know when a client comes to us and has depression we know what treatments are likely to work and we can spend our time focusing on those treatments with expectation that it's made they may be more likely to work than other types of treatment now even though making these assumptions and reifying to some extent is a necessary part of science something happens when we take these reifications too literally or we take them for granted as some type of uh, holy grail of knowledge without considering that sometimes they may be limited in some way or sometimes there may be other possible explanations for what we're observing that could be more useful to us. And that's the main issue that I've observed with reification in my time working in the, in, in the past, working in the mental health industry, that when we assume that a particular model of an illness or a particular model of treatment is always going to be a concrete is always going to produce a concrete real result and we assume that how we think about something is always how it's actually occurring in real life in the client's mind it completely it can it can stop us from considering that there are other possible explanations that there are other possible explanations for the illness that there could be completely different models of illness and psychology that might better explain exactly what someone's experiencing and how we can potentially treat it I'm going to give an example of this and it's again to do with the treatment of depression using a type of therapy known as cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. CBT is something that's quite lauded within the scientific community and in scientific psychology for a good reason. It's been tested rather thoroughly over the years and the evidence suggests that it effectively treats depression. Now CBT is based on the assumption Again, the idea of an assumption that a person becomes depressed when they have distorted beliefs about the world beliefs that are exaggerated but which they don't actually test for evidence and when they test when they when they allow these beliefs to consume them without testing them for their validity they become overwhelmed and they become depressed as a result of them thoughts such as uh, negativity about themselves that they're worthless that they don't have the positive qualities that they thought they do, uh, beliefs about negative beliefs about other people that they don't believe that other people care about them as much as they do, or that they can be trusted, and about the world that the world may not be worth living in, or the world may not have much to offer them. That it may not be worth living the life that they do. So the premise of CBT is to teach the client how these types of thoughts manifest, and then teach them how to test them. And when they test these thoughts, the expected outcome is that they find that there is not as much evidence for those thoughts being true as what they thought there would be. And hence, 
they become uh, more self-aware, more aware of how these thoughts are happening without their awareness, without their permission, so to speak, and they become more critically thinking. They think more carefully about these thoughts when they do occur, and they start to realize that these thoughts are not necessarily real, that they're not necessarily worthless, that other people may be able to be trusted, that life may be worth living. Now, this methodology, without, with, with all due fairness, has been tested over the years. It's been found to work, and it is a relatively low-risk methodology. But in the time that I've worked with the mentally ill, I found that there are other ways that you can conceptualize mental illness and using depression as an example, depression, that are perhaps more deep and more explanatory than what this simple, relatively simple model postulates. And I found that by exploring some of the deeper substrata, which are essentially underlying factors that uh, drive a particular phenomenon. You'll use the word substrate or substrata. I'll use that term quite often. By exploring some of those substrata, I'd have the opportunity to better educate my clients on what was happening within them. Because ultimately, as I've stated in the past, I don't want my clients to simply take my word I don't want them to simply assume that what I'm saying is correct and that if they simply uh, mimic my methodologies and my, uh, my sentiments without testing things for themselves, that their problems will become better. The better approach is to teach my clients to, uh, to test ideas for themselves, to test the solutions for themselves, to see if they work and if they don't work, to work with me to modify them Ultimately, what that's doing is helping them be more independent because working in the mental health industry, your ultimate goal, if it's possible, should be to help a person live a life independently, even if they are mentally ill, because if you breed reliance on yourself as a practitioner, then that's an ethical concern. Ultimately, independence is a common ultimate good. Now. CBT as a methodology can certainly be practiced that way, in a way that's educative and fosters independence. But I've found that if the model is taken too literally, it can miss opportunities to teach clients vital, uh, vital information. And I've found that what I've been doing, what I've, what I've done in the past, uh, that involves exploring some of the deeper substrata and contextualizing them is actually more effective. So if we're not careful, we reify depression as simply a set of exaggerated beliefs and we assume that the solution to them is to simply test them for evidence. And when we find that there's no evidence, we assume that the client will rationalize from the, from the lack of evidence that their thoughts must have been false after all, and that they're not necessarily the, 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 the negative thoughts that they had weren't necessarily true and that there's less reason to be depressed. But let's compare some, let's compare some different approaches to viewing depression and some different approaches to addressing it. I've met numerous depressed people over the years, both in my personal life and in my professional life. And as someone who has experienced mental health problems himself,
I've introspected greatly on the substrata that make up illnesses such as depression. Now, this is something that's important to consider for any mental illness, and in a future video I'll certainly be discussing this as another important topic. But when a person is depressed, they're not simply having irrational bad thoughts. They're not just feeling sad. What they're actually feeling is, or what they're experiencing, whether, they are, whether they're consciously aware of it or not, is a, an internal emotional pain that makes conducting their basic everyday life so painful, so uncomfortable, that when they try to do anything, it actually takes away some of their basic thinking abilities. We call that executive functioning. It's the functioning of the brain that allows us to make basic decisions and undertake basic actions. When a person is severely depressed and they try to do something, something that involves a lot of mental effort, such as having a conversation, but even something basic sometimes, when they experience the shutdown of their executive functioning, it makes it difficult for their brain to access the basic information that's stored in memory about what it is that they meant to do. For example, let's say I had to make my bed, but my depression was so severe that it was preventing me from achieving that task. It's not simply that I'm sad and that I don't feel like making my bed. What's actually happening is, whenever you undertake a task, whether you know it or not, you're actually accessing information from your memory about how to complete that task. I know from memory, from what I've been taught long ago, that in order to make my bed, I first have to remove the duvet by folding it and uh, untucking it from the end. I know that I have to then remove the sheets. I know that I then have to place the new sheets on and how to tuck them around the mattress and then replace the duvet and so on and so on. That's all information that's stored in memory. When a mental illness is severe enough that it affects your executive functioning, sometimes it may be difficult to actually access that information. It's not that you don't know it, you know that you know it, but actually accessing it so that you can make decisions and actually carry out the physical tasks, the physical movements involved, becomes difficult or impossible. And people might sometimes describe this as brain fog, not being able to access something in their mind, not being able to think a certain thought or think of certain words to say. It's difficulty accessing information and memory and difficulty with carrying out basic, uh, basic tasks. If you explore something in that depth, and I'm not saying that many experienced and quite competent practitioners haven't, but when you, ex when you explore something in that depth, you start to see that there are a lot more layers to a phenomenon such as depression than simply irrational thoughts and sadness and bad feelings. So sometimes, Simply testing for the negative thoughts may not be sufficient, okay? No treatment methodology is perfect, but sometimes there might be something deeper that you need to address. Something else that doesn't necessarily always get discussed in circles that advocate CBT is the importance of contextualization. 
Now often, not always, but often, negative thoughts, which do exist in depression, they don't come from nowhere, they don't occur at random. People develop them, and often there are reasons in a person's past that those thoughts and feelings have developed. Now, something that's quite commonly said in psychology, which as a former mental mental health practitioner and as someone who is now a life coach and who helps people overcome non-pathological life, uh, life barriers, I will say with absolute adamacy that it is extremely neglectful to assume that only the present matters. Because if we don't know from where we've come, how do we know where we're going? How can we use lessons from the past to inform what our next action should be? Often a person will develop negative thoughts about themselves and about the world because they've been taught those negative thoughts. And they've been taught them not necessarily through an explicit teaching method like what happens in a classroom. They've been taught through assumption and inference. For example, let's say a person has numerous bad experiences in life with people being untrustworthy, with people not keeping their promises and with people, not, uh, with, with people lying to them. Now, no one has specifically told that person, you can't trust anyone in the world. What's happened is that person has seen so many people break their trust that they've assumed now that it is difficult that it should be difficult to trust people and that one should be wary of trusting people. People make these assumptions because of evolutionary reasons. Much like making assumptions, as I discussed earlier, imagine if you had to test every new situation you encountered in the world without using any past knowledge you would be setting yourself up for some severe harm because if you didn't use past knowledge, you wouldn't have any conceptualization of what was safe in the world and what wasn't safe in the world. So you have to use past knowledge to make assumptions. For example, so in this, in this instance, a person may know when they encounter each new person that they meet that every person is different and that maybe some people can be trusted and some people can't be. But you can't simply trust every person infinitely. You have to have boundaries. You have to have limits as to how much trust is reasonable. And to make those quick decisions about how much you should trust someone, you need to use past information. And if the most emotionally charged and therefore present in your mind information that you have is a lot of people have broken my trust, then that's the information that's going to be available to you and you're going to make a decision based on that. Again, making those assumptions has an evolutionary purpose. It helps us survive because if we count on that information and we don't trust anyone, then we avoid potentially putting ourselves in harm's way by giving trust to people who are ultimately going to hurt us. Obviously, that has its downsides. If we don't trust anyone, we also can't live life. So we have to make assumptions there as well. But these are the underlying reasons why these types of beliefs develop or possible underlying reasons. Now, when you start to introspect to that extent, and, you, and if I was to have a, a depressive experience right now, and I, let's, let's combine those two scenarios. If I was to, if I needed to make my bed right now, but I just had an experience of 
somebody breaking my trust and causing emotional harm to me, it might affect my executive functioning to the extent that I can't make my bed. But, but, if I wanted to try and overcome the barriers to the situation right now, if I was to simply use a plain, basic CBT-based model, all I would be thinking was, these thoughts are irrational. They're not true. See the, try and find the evidence that you can't trust anyone in the world. Unfortunately, all the evidence that I've had, or a lot of the evidence that I've had, suggests I can't trust people, so it doesn't overcome the problem. But if instead I take a minute to just reflect on my past and say, well, obviously I need to make decisions in the world because otherwise I wouldn't be able to do anything. So, yes, it's true that a lot of people have, uh, have broken my trust. And the reason that I feel no one can be trusted is because I've had so many of those experiences. And it's just my mind's way of trying to protect me from danger. And, 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 and this experience is not just me being... Uh, this experience is not just me being down on myself, it's not just me feeling sorry for myself. It's a real problem within the mind in which my executive functioning has stopped working. But, there are ways that I can potentially uh, consider this situation that are different to what I might have done automatically. Looking at it in that depth brings us to a very different place because by understanding now why I develop these thoughts and why what's happening in my mind is happening I'm in a better position to actually lessen the problem in the future so I could then learn to have discussions with myself before I meet each new person and discuss that and discuss with myself the idea that if that person breaks my trust it doesn't inherently mean that every person I meet is going to break my trust, but rather that this particular event has not gone according to plan, for example. If I don't have those discussions with myself, I will simply continue to assume that the world is an untrustworthy place, that people cannot be trusted, and that uh, there would be no point in me trusting anyone in the world and therefore doing much of, uh, much of significance in the world because I'm assuming that every time I try to encounter somebody, every time I encounter somebody, the result is going to be disappointing to me. And herein, in many clients who have depression with whom I've worked in the past, lies another factor that is often not considered by common models of depression. When a client's depressed, they're not satisfied with this conclusion to which they come. When they rationalize to themselves, that the world is an unsafe place because people can't be trusted and there's no point in trying to engage with anyone and do anything of meaning because it's likely to be a disappointment to me because people are going to break my trust because that's all that's happened in the past. You reach a very severe, you reach quite a severe conflict. Nobody, nobody would come to that conclusion and say, ah, well, I know how the world works now. I can be satisfied with the rest of my life. No. A person who's in that position still wants to have a life for themselves. They still want to go out in the world and meet people and not be disappointed and engage and do what they would normally do on a daily basis. 
they're not simply being down on themselves, they want to have a relatively normal, so to speak, life. They want to be able to engage. But they're stuck with a conflict deep down inside. On one side of the conflict, they want to take the risk of going out and meeting people and potentially being disappointed, but also potentially having a chance at being rewarded by meeting somebody with whom they may uh, socialise quite well and with whom they may be able to trust and getting satisfaction and joy from life. But on the other hand, their mind is saying, every time you've tried that in the past, you've been disappointed. Do you want to risk the pain of being disappointed again? And they're constantly conflicted between the two and they're always taking the so-called safe option of not being disappointed because they don't want to suffer the same pain. So what they have to do is work out a medium between the two sides of the conflict. How can I go and engage in the world, but place limits in, but, but place limits, so that I'm protected against anyone who might want to harm me? Finding a happy medium between the two extremes. So now let us compare the two perspectives. One perspective conceptualizes or reifies depression as a series of irrational thoughts and bad feelings. The other conceptualizes depression as a series of negative thoughts that stem from an evolutionary need to learn about the world distorted and a deep conflict between wanting to be between wanting to live life and not wanting to be harmed. That second explanation or that perspective on depression is a lot deeper and speaks to the root of the problem and helps us to guide how we should best educate the individual, educating them on the workings of their minds so that they can become more independent thinkers and so that ultimately they understand the reason that these events are taking place and ultimately in the long term they are better equipped to tackle the problems. Perhaps these alternative solutions, which again I'm certainly not speaking as a sum of all knowledge here, there are many possible explanations as to how we can better address these problems. There are many possible solutions. Uh, I won't uh, propose any one as a silver bullet, but perhaps in a, in, perhaps in a future episode I will uh, further expand on my experiences with mental illness and uh, in myself and with other people and how we can better address uh, how we can better address certain certain issues but if we simply assume that how we reify something is always real we're blinded to other possible explanations for a phenomenon so in conclusion there are valid reasons to reify there are valid reasons to use assumptions in science as i said it is a necessary part of studying the events of the world scientifically. But one must always be cautious when undertaking critical thinking to acknowledge that sometimes our conceptualizations of what happens in the world may be overly simplified and may require further investigation. And we should never assume that just because something is thoroughly tested that it necessarily holds all the answers and that there's no reason to consider other possible explanations for particular phenomena and possible different solutions to problems. Now, as I've said, I'm not a mental health practitioner. Please do not take my opinions as advice. My intention is to stimulate discussion. And I would therefore encourage everybody, whoever you may be, whether you be a consumer or a practitioner or anyone, 
whatever you believe, whether it be uh, in, in agreement with what I've said, whether you may disagree with what I've said, I encourage everyone to start the discussion about mental illness. No discussion is wasted. It is always worth considering a range of perspectives of what may underlie mental illness, what might underlie the workings of our mind, what we may do to help ourselves strengthen our minds and to overcome the barriers that, may, that we may face in the midst of illness. I encourage everyone to get involved in the discussion, whether you'd like to comment below, whether you'd like to write to me. So thank you for joining me for another episode. In the next episode, I'll be looking at reification again. That'll be the second part of the series. And I will be discussing uh, reification from a slightly different but equally relevant perspective. So take care until then, and I'll see you next time.